Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we examined the testimony of a horse owner and student who was on the defendant's property on the day he shot Lauren Kanarek. On today's installment, we examine the testimony of another equestrian enthusiast who also offered the defendant legal services in his dispute with the alleged victims in this case. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's nearing lunchtime on April 5th, 2022, and Judge Steven Taylor invites the defense to call their next witness. Again, Chris Dininger rises for the defense and requests that Stephen Tarshish take the stand. Mr. Tarshish appears to be in his 70s. He is tall with short gray hair. He sports tortoiseshell round glasses and wears a gray-blue suit, a white dress shirt, and a patterned blue tie. Dininger again begins his questioning by asking the witness about his employment background and other biographical information. What do you do for a living? I'm an attorney. And how long have you been engaged in the practice of law? 35 years. Can you give us a, uh, your educational background? Uh, certainly, I went to a city university in New York, attended law school at Syracuse College of Law, and graduate school at uh, NYU. What was the graduate degree at NYU? Uh, it wasn't a degree. I went for courses in tax. Okay. And when did you first become licensed to practice law, if you recall? <laughs> uh, 1976, actually. And in, in, I'm licensed both in New York and New Jersey. It was... Um, 76 in New York and I believe 80 in New Jersey. And with respect to your practice in New Jersey, do you have any sort of focus with respect to your work? When I'm asked that question, I usually describe myself as a, a business transactional lawyer. But over the last five or 10 years, I've developed a somewhat unique specialty in equine law. What is equine law, if you could briefly describe that for the jury? Basically, it's providing the horse community and people involved in horse businesses, whether they be amateur owners, professional riders, breeders, trainers, both on the sports side as well as the racing side, have very many of the same business issues as most businesses, buying and selling horses, uh, importing, uh, breeding uh, situations, syndications of, of racehorses and sport horses. Unfortunately, at times, sometimes litigation. So because of the unique nature of the people and the, uh, the rules that are associated with the sport, a specialty of, I suppose, very few attorneys who do it uh, has arisen, and I'm one of them. Has your specialty in your past experience ever touched upon the issue of boarding arrangements for horses and training arrangements for people? Oh, quite frequently. Could you briefly describe your experience in those areas? 
Well, many of the clients I've had are on both sides. I have clients who are operators of um, equestrian boarding facilities, commercial facilities. So they will have come to me. They will come to me, I should say, to prepare boarding agreements for the people who board their horses with them, setting out the rules, the terms, the conditions under which the owner and operator of the equine boarding facility will care for and take care of a person's horses. And on the other side of that, it's the person who has a horse and they want to place their horse in the care of an equine facility. So they will ask me to review frequently a boarding agreement to make sure it's fair and equitable and that uh, their horse is going to be well cared for it and their rights are going to be protected. So it's like any contract transaction, it'll be both sides of the, of the transaction in a boarding situation. A specialized form of contract? Yes, very specialized. Do you know Michael Barrisone? Yes, I do. How long have you known Mr. Barrisone? Uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 years, I think, at this point. And how did you first come to know Mr. Barrisone? I first came to know him uh, as a trainer. I was training with a young woman who was, whom Michael was a mentor. She was a professional. And she would frequently, uh, for her own benefit, take lessons with Michael. And she introduced me to him. And over a period of time seeing his skill and ability and what he was able to do and aware of his reputation, I began to take lessons with him as well. Well, so let's take a tangential turn and topic for a second. Are you also a horse? Yes, I am. Okay, and how long have you been pursuing horse-related activities? Over 30 years. Do you consider yourself to be a hobbyist, a professional, something else? What do you consider <laughs> yourself to be? My time would say I'm a professional. The fact of the matter is I'm an amateur. It's, it's something uh, people who are involved in the sport in a serious way uh, understand. It's a different kind of sport. It's not a hobby. It's not like golf where you play and you put your clubs in the closet. It a, becomes a, a matter of a full-time commitment, as it is for me. Is it a passion for you? Oh, most definitely. I, I ride at least five times a week. I devote at least 15 hours a week to it. I compete up and down the East Coast, and I've been doing it for many, many years. Might sound like a naive question, but that's what we're here for, to get a full explanation. You ride. Do you also own horses? Yes, I do. Over the years, how many horses have you owned? Oh, God. Well, I have both sport horses and race horses. Uh, the interest in race horsing is a little different. It's it's common for there to be what's known as fractional ownership in racehorses, unless you're very big, very, very, frankly, very, very wealthy or, or run the business. Most racehorses are owned by three or four or five people. Uh, sport horses are usually owned individually. Over the years, I've probably had 15 or so horses that I've ridden and competed with and probably 10 or so racehorses in which I've had an interest. And is there a particular area of horse sports that you focus at the present time, I've, I've competed in the three major disciplines, eventing, show jumping, and dressage. For the last 10 or 12 years, it's been dressage. And was it dressage that brought you to Michael? Yes, it was. Okay. And uh, what was it about uh, Michael's reputation that made you want to train with him? Like any teacher, uh, the ability to communicate uh, to a student is what makes, in my view, uh, an exceptional or good teacher. And Michael had a very, very uh, gifted way of communicating a very, very difficult sport and making it understandable so that amateurs you know, such as myself would be able to learn and progress. He had a, a gift for, commu for communication and a tremendous empathy for the horses, of course. Did Michael train your horses too? No, he did not. Okay, uh, but he trained you. Correct. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chris Deininger next moves on to ask Mr. Tarshish about the defendant's treatment of the horses in his care. In your experience with training with Michael, did you ever witness him riding a horse? Oh, absolutely, sure. Many times. In all the times that you witnessed Michael using a horse, riding a horse, did you ever see him do anything harmful to the horse? No, absolutely not. Michael um, considers his horses gifts from God. He would, I think that might have been a quote even. He treated them as, the, as most horse people do, um, very special and creatures to be cherished. And he was, if anything, very, very indulgent, but never abusive. So he was your trainer. Yeah. Did you still have a training relationship with him in the summer of 2019? Not really. I say that not really because the, the, it, it was intermittent. Normally when you have a trainer, as I do now, it's a consistent relationship where you train with the same person, you know, on a daily basis. With Michael, it was an occasional clinic or an occasional lesson. So I can't say it was really, you know, if I had called up Michael and said I wanted a lesson, I would have had a lesson. But I, I didn't do it. So there was no, not a real training relationship at that point. Over the years that you worked with Michael and knew him, did you develop a friendship with him? Yes, definitely. Well, tell me about your friendship with Michael over those years. It was very soon there after we, I started taking lessons and training with him. Michael and I, for whatever reasons, had a real empathy with each other. We kind of connected, mostly through the love of the horses. We're also, to be very candid, somewhat unique in the sport, in the sense that dressage particularly is a sport dominated by women. I know for a fact that 90% of the members of the United States Dressage Federation are women. So men don't usually participate in the sport. So. You know, that was uh, kind of, we draw each other to because we were kind of, you know, oddballs in the sport. And even though he was a tremendous, successful, you know, international reputation professional, I was a lousy amateur. You know, that kind of brought us together and we just liked each other and got along and enjoyed each other's company. Did you socialize with him? Oh, yeah. Did you socialize with him at the farm in Long Valley? Yes. Did there ever come a time when he became your client for purposes of legal services. Yes, they did. Okay, and when did he first become your client for legal services, if you recall? I'm not asking you to tell us anything about the specifics. It's, of the it's over 10 years ago, but I couldn't, off the top, I'd have to go look at my files and, and see when you know the first matter might have been, but it's, I'm sure 10 years ago, at least. So over that decade, how would you describe your professional relationship as his attorney? Was it intermittent, constant, something else? Well, the work would be intermittent because it's not the nature of something that comes up every day. Uh, but in my mind, I believed he considered me his attorney. Whenever a legal matter of, was, anytime the services of an attorney were needed, he always called me. But it could be three or four months could pass or um, two weeks could pass or six months could pass. There was no consistency to it. It was when the need arose. I'd like to think, I certainly did, think that he thought of me as his attorney. Well, let's move specifically to the time period of July 2019. Or actually, let's start it in June through the day of the incident. You're aware that an incident occurred on August 7th? 
2019? Yes, I am. All right, so from June of that year to the date of the incident, did Michael contact you requesting your services? Yes, he did. And was it a matter you had previously consulted with him on or something new? Something new. Without revealing any client confidences, what was the subject matter of that engagement? He called me to tell me that he had a, a client Let's not get into the specifics of what was said. I understand. So the right. question would be to describe what the matter was, but without using yes. someone's word. I understand. Okay. I, of course I do. The purpose for which he called me was he had a problem with a particular boarder who he wanted to leave the farm, and uh, the person would not leave. That's as simply as I could put it. It was much more complicated than that, but that's about as simply as I could state it. Did Michael identify to you that border? By name, you mean? Yes. Yes. And who was it? A Lauren Canterac. Following the time when Michael called you to engage you on this new matter, did you come to the farm? Yes. Do you recall coming to the farm in late July of 2019? I was at the farm several times and certainly in late July. Oh. Do you recall having conversations with Michael about the matter that you were representing him on with respect to Lord Canterac. Yes, I did. Did any of those conversations take place in the locker area of the barn? I don't recall any taking place there. There were so many conversations. I know where the vast majority of the conversations I could say with certain took place, but I don't have a specific recollection of anything in the locker area. Um, are you personally familiar with the locker area? Yes, I am. Let me show you a photograph that uh, was moved in evidence as 800-42. Let me know when you've had a chance to review I know, I know it very well. Does that photograph accurately depict how the locker area looked when you were on the farm in the late July, early August time period of 2019? Yes, it does. Is there a bench in that area? No, and there was no bench there. Now, you said you could recall where certain conversations took place. Uh, did you say the vast majority? Correct. And what's your recollection as to where the vast majority of your conversations with Michael took place? It was an area that was referred to as the lounge area. And where was the lounge area located? It was the center of the uh, of the farm, of the building <laughs> that, that comprised the stables and the barn. Was the lounge area the club room? Uh, it was the club room. I can you know, tell you uh, that this, this staircase here, uh, if you walked up this staircase, there was a door here. And if you walk through that door, you entered into the lounge area. The lounge area was when you came to the front of the entrance to, to the farm. There were double doors, and if you opened the double doors, there was a very, very, very large room that was the lounge area. In that area was a kitchen area, in that area was a huge pool table, and in the center of the area was um, couches and, and seats. The reason it was there was because there was a, a, a glass wall and which was not unusual for a lot of horse facilities. The idea was that clients and friends could sit in the lounge area, look through the glass, and watch you know, their kids, their husbands, their mothers, their daughters, watch them ride. So that was the, pretty obviously the purpose of the lounge area. And that's where, because it was the largest area at the farm and very comfortable, obviously with couches and chairs and a, a kitchen where people would congregate, and that's where the vast majority of my conversation with Michael took place. Was Lauren Canterac ever present in the room when you had conversations of that nature with Michael Barrison? No, absolutely not. Did there come a time in late July or August preceding the incident that you became concerned 
that your private conversations with Michael Barrison were somehow being overheard by Lauren Kenerak. Yes. Oh, excuse me, yes. What happened that gave you that concern? Well, unfortunately, this had dragged on, the whole incident and getting worse and worse almost by the day. And given the very, very almost, I hate to put the incestuous nature of the horse world, what was going on at the farm became common knowledge within the horse community. So there was a tremendous amount of social media being posted about this stuff. And I believe, I heard it from so many different sources, but I believe I first became aware that she was claiming to have heard conversations. I believe I first became aware of it through postings on social media. Was Robert Goodwin ever in the room when you were having private conversations with Michael about the matter? No, I've never met Robert Goodwin, never seen him. Did you ever see any social media postings with respect to what was going on at the farm? Oh God, yes. Prior to the incident? Yes. How did you obtain access to those postings? Well, I'm not a social media person, but they would be pointed out to me by Michael and uh, Mary Haskins Gray, Justin uh, Harden might have done it. You know, a lot of this, I, I don't remember specifically the source after, you know, it was such a chaotic time and so much was going on, so I can't necessarily pin down where I might have heard something. I just know I heard it, and these are the likely places that I, from whom I would have heard it. With respect, and then, and then I would go look and see for myself. Yeah. So, with respect to the postings that you saw, did you see any that reflected words that you had spoken in private to Michael? Yes. How many such postings did you see? I can only I, one particularly stands out because I was so stunned. It was really disturbing. Because it was like, you know, it was like somebody was in the room, like she was in the room. And I, and it was very, it was very, it, it, it the only way she could have known it is somehow by hearing it. Because it was such a narrow, specific conversation. It wouldn't have been something that would have been passed along to other people in idle gossip conversation. So you used the pronoun she in that description. To whom were you? Uh, Lauren Canarak, I'm sorry. Lauren Canarak? Yes. Did there come a, have Lauren, Robert Goodwin, and her horses leave Michael Barrison's farm. Yes. And did you make any uh, arrangements for Lauren Canarac and her horses to go to another barn? Yes, I did. What arrangements did you make? Understand, I never spoke to Lauren Canarac, and I had never met Carl, in fact, until actually something recently. Uh, but I never saw her, didn't know her. I only spoke with her father, Jonathan Canarac, and he and I had... Well, without getting into the spoken words, right. I'm asking you what arrangements Well, you I'll made. tell you, yeah. He and I spoke about negotiating an arrangement whereby she would voluntarily leave the farm so that other judicial means to have her removed would not be necessary. And that's what we talked about, a negotiation of those terms so that she would leave. Did you identify a specific farm where she could go? Yes, I did. Was there a specific trainer involved with that farm? Yes, there was. Was that trainer in some manner equal to the level of training that Michael could offer? Yeah. Objection. What's the basis for the objection? I don't think there's a, there, there's a uh, foundation for that question, Judge. It also calls for his opinion, and I'm not sure what the relevance of that opinion would be here. What's the question? Yeah, I'm not sure what the relevance of, of his opinion is. But certainly the arrangements that he made is something you can get into. So that trainer, was it an Olympic-level trainer? I had won a gold medal at the Pan American Games, equal to an Olympic rider, yes. And did that trainer have a facility similar to Michael's? Uh, absolutely equal to, and it was approximately 15 to 20 minutes from 
the Long Valley location where uh, Michael's Fissile Farm was. And did that trainer have stalls available for Lauren Canaract's horses? Yes. And did you communicate that information to Jonathan Canaract? Yes, I did. And I communicated the individual's name, who was known to both Lauren and her father. Following the time when you communicated that to Jonathan Canaract, did you have an understanding as to whether or not there was an agreement that Lauren and her horses were going to leave Michael's farm? Objection. Let me see that sidebar, please. After a brief sidebar conference, Judge Taylor issues his ruling on the prosecution's objection. Sustained. Rephrase your question, counsel. It's a narrow question. He's going to rephrase the question. Go ahead, counsel. In your negotiations with Jonathan Canrack, what was your perception of his role in those negotiations? Being a lawyer and having to answer these questions sometimes is a challenge because I'm kind of monitoring myself. I understand. His role was to speak on our behalf to find a place that she found acceptable based upon her own standards, her own requirements, where she therefore would voluntarily leave Michael's farm and go to a, a, another location. And his role was to negotiate the terms that would be acceptable to her. Did she leave the farm? No, she did not. Did there come a time after those negotiations occurred that you wrote a letter providing some sort of notice to Lauren Canberra? I'm confused because you're leaving out a piece. We negotiated an understanding. I believed, uh, my, me, I believe we had an agreement. Objection, I, Judge. Well, it's his, it's his understanding. That was the basis for the last objection that we addressed at sidebar. I know, but that that's, uh, I, I'll allow that. It's his, it's his understanding based on his interaction. So it's, it's sufficient without anything more. It was his understanding there was an agreement. What's your next question? I'd like to show you what's been marked for identification as Defense Exhibit 700-3. Why don't you take a moment and look at that? Okay. You've reviewed Exhibit 700-3? Yes, yes, I have. Do you recognize what that is? Yes, I do. All right. Is that a letter you drafted? Yes, it is. All right. And was there a date on the letter that you drafted? August sir? 5th. All right. Go ahead. Ask your next question. This particular copy I've shown you is unsigned. Do you agree? Yes, it is. Did you cause a signed copy of this letter to be delivered to Lauren Canarack and John Goodwin? Uh, absolutely. Yes. Robert Goodwin? John. Robert Goodwin. Robert Goodwin. No, to Jonathan Canarack and to Lauren Canarack. Not there we go. I not, not, to, not to Robert Goodwin. Okay. Did you give Lauren Canarack notice that she needed to vacate the farm? That's what was the purpose of the letter, yes. I moved 700-3 in evidence. I would object, Judge. There's been testimony about it, as you said. Prosecutor Shellhorn objects to entering the agreement between the Canarax and the defendant into evidence. Again, after a brief sidebar, Judge Taylor issues his ruling. Uh, the objection sustained, but questions, counsel, you can ask questions about the content of the letter. Can you tell me uh, specifically from your own recollection or dates when you were having these negotiations with Jonathan Canarax? It would have been the Friday preceding this which I guess would have been second, I suppose. Yeah. And the week, at least the week before that, and maybe even the week prior to that. It went on for some time. So when you say the second, you're referring to August 2nd, Correct. 2019? Yes. 
and you're saying that it was occurring on that date as well as potentially the week before? Yeah, I mean, the specific dates, of course, are days I can't remember. But I know we had several conversations, and it took quite a bit of back and forth to get to the point where I thought we were on the Friday preceding this letter. And do you recall giving Lord Canarac a specific date and time by which you were demanding on behalf of Michael Barrison that she vacate the premises? Yes, I do. And what's your recollection? August 7th, Wednesday, August 7th. And... Did you cause this letter to be delivered to Lauren Canerac? I think I asked that, but if you could just say again. Yes, I did. And on what date did you cause it to be delivered to her? I can't recall. I can only assume it was the date that, that it, was, it was delivered by email. So it would have been delivered the date it was, it's dated August 5th. August 5th is the date? Correct. Okay. Was Michael aware that you were sending this letter? Oh, yeah. Did Michael express to you any concerns about sending this letter? Yes, he did. What concerns did he express to you? He didn't think she would uh, leave. Subsequent to the delivery of that letter, did you proceed with any actions toward legal proceedings against Lauren Canterac and Rob Goodwin to have them vacate the farm? Yes, they did. And I have to confess at this point, my memory is a little fuzzy. I did what I said I was going to do, and I initiated an eviction proceeding. And she was served with a, a, a complaint and eviction. Chris Dininger next shows Mr. Tarsh's two documents, marked Exhibits 704 and 705. After the witness has had a chance to review them, Dininger resumes his questioning. What is Exhibit 704? This is an affidavit of service of the uh, eviction complaint on uh, Lauren Canterac. What is Exhibit 705? The verified complaint, which was served pursuant, as reflected by this affidavit of service. Do you have a refreshed recollection as to the precise date when the eviction complaint was served on Lauren Canterac? Yes or no? Yes. What's your refreshed recollection? August 6th. In connection with uh, spending time with Michael in the time period from July 31st through <clears throat> August 6th, did you notice any changes in his affect? Well, the changes I noticed preceded those days, but certainly very much so in those days, yes. Let's move it back further then. Let's take it from July 15th forward. Were you uh, in Michael's presence in July of 2019? Yes, I was. Did you notice changes in his affect as it got closer to the date of the incident? Absolutely. What were your observations? He became very, very upset, almost to the point of... Um, being unable to function. As an attorney, and this was my client, it got so bad I couldn't even have a conversation with him. He was um, in constant fear of, of so many things, and all he would talk about, he was in a loop. All he would do was talk about the fears that he had. And, and here I am trying to be a lawyer to a, a situation and proposing solutions or possible paths to take, and he, he wouldn't deal with them. He, he, it was difficult to have a conversation with him, he was constantly agitated. At times he was incoherent. It got so bad that I threatened to quit. I said, I'm not serving any purpose. You're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. I, I remember having an, uh, screaming at him. I screamed at him, not him yelling at me because I was so upset that he was just ignoring me. I don't think I realized at the time, you know, how out of it he was. Uh, and, and it only perhaps was later as we got really close to the 6th and 7th when he became just, you know, non-functioning, just completely... He could, couldn't function. Did the fears relate to Lauren Canerac? No, totally to Lauren Canerac. He was afraid that, aside from her... I'm going to object. Yeah. Sustained. 
based upon your professional relationship with Michael, do you have an understanding as to uh, his finances? Oh, yes. And did you have an understanding as to Michael's net worth? I had a, a pretty good idea. I don't think I would say I had a, you know, a, a really exact or precise understanding, but I knew he was very, very unique in the horse world. How is he unique in the horse world? Again, bearing in mind, and it's hard if you're not part of this community, this is an incestuous community where everybody knows everything. And Michael was unique that he was a successful businessman. I mean, they're, with all due respect to their professional accomplishments, they're Olympic riders that don't have a nickel to their name. They rely on sponsors to support them. Michael had accumulated wealth in the millions, and it's just not done. He was a very, he was a brilliant businessman. I have no further questions at this time. Judge Taylor offers Prosecutor Shellhorn an opportunity to question the witness. Cross-examination. Mr. Tarshish, do you have any awareness of what Michael Barrison's monthly expenses were? No. Do you know anything about how much it cost him to run the two farms that he owned? No. Or pay payroll? No. Take care of the horses? No. Now, you were asked a question by Mr. Uh, Dininger about being contacted by Mr. Barrison with respect to the issue with Ms. Canerac. Correct. Do you remember when you were first contacted about that? Precisely? No, I don't. The best I could tell you, it was either late June or the early part of July, because my reaction was when he spoke to me, he had told me of a situation that had been going ongoing for months. And my reaction was, why didn't you call me sooner? So I think it was late June or early July. So you think he contacted you somewhere a month to six weeks, potentially, before the shooting? Could be. Yeah. Do you have records of that? No. You were his lawyer? Yes. And this was ongoing? You had been representing him for approximately 10 years or so at that point? Uh, on and off, yes. And he contacted you about an issue that he had with this quarter and wanted to take action? Yes. You weren't aware of any specific written contracts that Mr. Barrison had with Ms. Canerac related to their business arrangements? I was aware there was no written contract. Now, if I could just ask you, uh, Judge, may I approach? Yes. Mr. Tarshis, I'm just showing you again what's been marked as 705 and 704. And I'm just trying to get the, the timeline right. Sure. 704 is an affidavit of service. Correct. And does that indicate that it was served on August 6, 2019 at 11.53 a.m.? Yes, it does. Who fills this out? The person whose who's signature appears, the person who actually served the document upon Ms. Canterac. And is that based on something that you would have given to that person or that company to serve? I would have given them the complaint to serve. They would have served it. And then as a consequence of them serving it, they generate from by themselves this document. It's not a, it's not a form that I give them and they fill in. They, they, they use their form and provide it to me. Okay. So if it says here that the papers that were served on that day and time was a letter, I guess you're saying that would be wrong. Uh, I don't recall. This complaint was never filed. Oh, it was never filed. That's right. Okay. So you sent a copy of the verified complaint unfiled to right. Ms. Canerac. They'll stop me, I'm sure. <laughs> Michael did not want to start eviction. He wanted to scare her into leaving. So we suggested serving her with the papers, but not filing them, hoping this alone would give her the impetus to honor the agreement we thought we had. I understand. So that that was my going to be my follow-up question was that Mr. Dininger showed you 705. Yeah, there's nothing even filled out on this thing. That's what I wanted to ask you. Right. So, okay. So this is a complaint that's not filed. Correct. 
I understand. And the purpose of sending it was for Michael Barrison to scare Lauren Canerac into thinking that he was serious or something Correct. to that effect. Exactly. No further questions, Judge. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we examine the testimonies of several more equestrian associates of the defendant. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.